Regenerative Medicine today. It's my pleasure to uh, welcome uh, to this podcast Dr. Joel Schumann. Dr. Schumann is Professor and Chairman of Ophthalmology at the University of Pittsburgh. He's also Director of the UPMCI Center and a Professor of Bioengineering. Uh, Dr. Schumann is internationally recognized for his uh, leadership in ophthalmology, both in terms of research and clinical activities. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Schumann to Regenerative Medicine today. Welcome, Dr. Schumann. John, thanks for having me. It's uh, interesting that uh, we would have this opportunity because uh, I know you have some keen interest in activities in uh, regeneration of the ocular system, and uh, I guess I didn't realize until recently that uh, uh, that was feasible. But before we get to ocular regeneration, uh, perhaps uh, you can share with us uh, some of your uh, keen interest in well-recognized activities in terms of uh, diagnostics for ocular problems. And I know in particular you've had uh, some notable success in applying this to uh, glaucoma. So uh, please share with us uh, some of uh, these uh, interests and focus areas. Thanks. The uh, timing is auspicious, uh, especially in terms of the UPMC Center for Ocular Regeneration, which is uh, nascent, but has a fair amount of activity already. And uh, I know we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. But let's talk about uh, diagnostic technologies and specifically diagnostic imaging technologies. Now, these apply really throughout the eye, and the eye was used as a model for the development of many of these systems that actually have utility throughout the body. And in particular, I had the good fortune to be involved with the development of optical coherence tomography, OCT. And OCT is a technology that allows us to basically visualize a cross-section of the tissue. So it's like looking at a microscope slide of the tissue that we're examining, but it's totally non-invasive and non-contact and uh, painless uh, for the patient uh, as well as being safe. It's also a very quick way of imaging the eye, so we can put together a map of the, um, of the eye uh, in three dimensions uh, using this sort of technology. The three-dimensional technology is new, and that's something that has been available commercially for only about two years, maybe a little bit less than that. The first system was introduced a little under two years ago in, in this country, and there are now seven different companies that manufacture this three-dimensional OCT imaging technology. What's interesting about this is that for instance, if you have a suspicion of macular degeneration or diabetes or diabetic uh, macular edema or glaucoma, it's, it's very straightforward as far as how to image the retina or the optic nerve and make a diagnosis of one of these conditions and see very specifically the pathology. So from a patient's perspective, what we're able to do is without asking patient to tell us anything, we're able to measure the, the tissue itself that is affected by the disease and we're able to determine whether or not the disease is there. Uh, 
and what the stage of the disease actually is. And that guides our treatment of, of the patient. So for many different types of retinal disease, for different types of diseases of the optic nerve, whether they be glaucoma or other types of optic nerve disease, and now for diseases in the front part of the eye as well. So for instance, many people are uh, having refractive surgery nowadays and want to get rid of their glasses. Well, we're able to do a very detailed assessment of the cornea, the clear tissue in the front of the eye, to determine the health of that tissue and also the uh, success of the procedure. Also in the old days when we did corneal transplants, we would have to remove the central part of the cornea, have a big hole in your eye, that we would then sew donor tissue into. And so it would be a full thickness replacement of the patient's cornea. Now, and usually when we do grafting, we're actually just removing a small layer of the back of the patient's cornea and replacing it with a small layer of the back of the donor cornea, which is really the part that's usually diseased in people who require corneal transplant. It's those cells on the back of the cornea called the endothelial cells we want to replace. And so we can assess the success of that procedure or determine the procedure is not working down the road, why it's not working, and how to fix it. So I I think that having diagnostic technologies that give us this degree of accuracy and precision, this degree of detail, and, and can do it reproducibly, are essential in detecting disease as well as in managing it. And so we're now developing algorithms in in our lab and other labs are doing this as well in order to measure change over time. And we want to be able to measure change over time very precisely with these, uh, these sorts of devices so that we can intervene as early as possible, stand the best chance of uh, fixing the problem or stopping the disease in its tracks. Because the worse the disease is when we intervene, in other words, uh, the worse the disease is when it's detected, the more likely it is that that disease will progress and the more intensively you need to treat in order to get the disease under control. Whereas if you pick up the disease early, you you stand a much better chance of protecting the patient from going on to further disease and also being able to treat less aggressively throughout the course of the disease. It's intriguing to me that 3D imaging of the ocular system has uh, perhaps, can I say, lagged the uh, state of the art in 3D imaging of other parts of the body by apparently some time. Right, and I think that what it is is a scale issue. So we're talking about wanting to detect uh, microns of change. And so if you're talking about imaging the heart, it's not so easy, but the scale is much larger. And if you want to look at, say, at-risk plaque, uh, coronary artery, actually OCT is being used for that purpose. Uh, ultrasound is being used for that purpose as well. But it's, it's really the desire to have that very high degree of precision and um, also accuracy. So we want to be able to make measurements on a very fine scale that are reproducible. And that, I, I think, is the, uh, the reason that you're seeing this technology uh, appear now in ophthalmology. Well, I have to commend you and your colleagues and counterparts for advancing the state-of-the-art in that regard. In regards to detection, I recall at least several years ago that uh, if a doctor could do damage of a visual field, you know, visual field test, 
Uh, it's been said that the patient already had lost 30 to 50 percent of their ocular nerve tissue. Is that still the case? We're probably at a point now where it's about 30%, and that's based on studies really in monkeys. The 40 to 50% number was based on studies in, um, in human cadaver eyes, a small number of eyes that, uh, that were evaluated by Harry Quigley and his colleagues. And this was also based on older technology for measuring the visual field, using the state-of-the-art technology for measuring visual fields, which is what we use clinically, and measuring in a you know, reliable way in, in monkeys. Harworth and colleagues were able to show that it was really closer to 30% of the tissue had to be absent in order to detect a visual field abnormality. And that, those studies were done over a period of years, and so you have some histology work, and you also have work with OCT measuring the uh, tissue thickness and, uh, and giving us those, uh, those sorts of percentages of loss. So, uh, yeah, there has to be a fair amount of structural loss, loss of tissue, before we're able to measure functional loss or loss of the ability to see. That means that early detection is uh, challenging at best. Is, are there strategies or uh, emerging technologies that might improve that, or are there alt are alternative ways to assess impending loss? So the answer is yes. There are emerging technologies for this, and one of the ways that three dimensions uh, gives the promise of being able to provide earlier detection of disease and earlier detection of progression is because we can acquire three-dimensional image and then align it and register it exactly to an image taken at a later time. And so the variability is much lower. And so by decreasing the variability, we're able to measure structure more accurately and measure changes in structure more accurately. The other areas, though, are also very interesting, although more uh, on the emerging side. And so things like optophysiology, where we're able to use OCT, for instance, to measure the function of the tissue. So we can stimulate tissue with light in the, in the retina, which responds to light, and we can measure the retina's response using OCT. There's, there are changes that occur in how much light is reflected from each layer of the retina using uh, this sort of technology. And Wolfgang Drexler at Cardiff uh, really pioneered that, uh, that field of optophysiology. We can also measure blood flow using these technologies, and the faster that uh, OCT can image, the faster the speed of the blood flow that we can measure. And so we're able to uh, measure in certain vessels that we couldn't measure in before with the uh, development, uh, with the further development of the technology. Oximetry, where we're able to actually measure how much oxygen there is in uh, the blood or in tissue. Spectroscopy, all of these things are feel. Uh, using OCT, but still are in the laboratory. They still need to be developed to the point where they can be brought to patients, which is really what it's all about. So one of the things I, I think I heard you say is that some of the techniques that are used are comparative. So it means that you, you have to follow a patient over a period of time in terms of identifying loss, looking at analysis on day X, analysis on day Y, and so forth. Is that correct? That's exactly right, yeah. So, for instance, with a disease like glaucoma, it's a chronic progressive disease. There are many diseases like that, but let's, let's talk about glaucoma, for instance. Um, so you, you have a chronic progressive loss of nerve tissue, and the goal of therapy these days is to prevent the loss of the optic nerve tissue as best we can. And so we need to measure from time to time whether or not 
there has been a change in how much nerve tissue the patient has. And we do that by visual inspection of the eye. So clinical examination, we do that using technologies like OCT. There are some other technologies as well. And we use that, we, we do visual fields to measure the function of the optic nerve. We also measure the eye pressure, which is a parameter that we can affect that will help us to preserve the nerve tissue. The higher the pressure, the more damage uh, there is to the nerve in somebody with glaucoma. Speaking of glaucoma, I believe that's uh, one of the examples of uh, where ocular problems are related to pathology in other parts of the body. Yes, um, so that's a, that's a very good point. So in glaucoma, it's not just an optic nerve disease. It's been defined for a number of years as a characteristic type of optic neuropathy, which is true, and intraocular pressure was uh, removed from the equation for a number of years. Prior to that, it was just characterized as a disease where intraocular pressure was elevated, and that's not the whole story either. So in, in fact, you have disease in a number of places in people who have glaucoma, and one is in the front of the eye. So uh, fluid is always being made in the eye and always uh, draining into the bloodstream. In order to get into the bloodstream, it needs to go through a tissue called the trabecular meshwork, and then into a structure called lens canal, and then through structures called collector channels, and then into aqueous veins, and then into the blood. There's another pathway that uh, fluid can follow also, but in humans, the majority of the fluid goes through this pathway. And there's an abnormality that occurs in this pathway in people who have glaucoma, and we um, actually were a group that identified a molecular marker in this uh, pathway for uh, people who have high-pressure glaucoma. And so this um, molecular marker is expressed in eyes of patients who have glaucoma, and it's part of a uh, tissue-specific non-lethal stress response that, that is turned on uh, in all eyes with high-pressure glaucoma. The point here is that you have disease in the uh, outflow system, you have disease in the optic nerve, you also have disease in the brain. And so the eye is an extension of the brain, and going further back in the brain, you can see abnormalities uh, in the substance of the brain itself. So there's something called the lateral geniculate nucleus, and then something called the occipital cortex. And in people with glaucoma, we're seeing abnormalities in all of those areas. And so it, it, it's not just an abnormality of the optic nerve. It, it really does affect the eye and the brain. So it needs to be, a, if I can use the term, a systems approach to uh, looking at these particular problems. Well, I think that's very, uh, very true, and and in general true uh, about a lot of what we do. You know, we we tend to subspecialize and to look at a particular field with great intensity. But really, a lot of what we do in medicine is interrelated, and certainly the the body is not just the collection of parts. Those those parts um, uh, interrelate. This is uh, certainly fascinating, and I'm sure we could uh, spend a lot more time on uh, diagnostics and, and uh, preventative medicine. But if we can shift perhaps and talk a little bit about the regenerative aspects of uh, your program, and you made a comment earlier, this is an emerging program, but perhaps you can share with us your vision and where you stand in that regard. We're very excited about uh, the UPMC Center for Ocular Regeneration. And uh, the reason is that we have a vision for a comprehensive approach to ocular regeneration going all the way from basic science uh, discovery and invention to translation to the clinic through clinical trials, 
transfer of that discovery and invention to industry so that these um, innovations can be available to patients throughout the world and also recognizing that there are some diseases where we may not be able to regenerate or restore function right now and that there's still a need to provide rehabilitation for those patients. And so taking approaches where we can provide visual information uh, to individuals who cannot see through non-visual pathways. And so, for instance, there's a device called a brain port that's made by a company called WeCab. And this um, is a device that uh, is not yet at this time FDA approved, but we have a grant for the next two years to study this device as a means of providing visual information to people who do not have vision. So people who have even no eyes uh, and allowing them to be able to navigate, to be able to function independently, to be able to recognize letters on a video monitor. All of these things are, are possible and they're possible without the information going through visual pathways or what we conventionally think of as visual pathways. I'm excited about this in, in a couple of different ways and I'm, I'm just talking about this one small aspect of uh, regenerative medicine, but it, it really is a um, concept that I think expands to broadly to, to define the center, and that is developing techniques, technologies, uh, in, in knowledge that benefits our patients, but at the same time drives us back to the laboratory to develop a better understanding of how the body works so we can then come back again to our patients to fulfill other needs that they might have that we're currently unable to address. So in this particular case where we're talking about giving visual input through non-visual pathways, it brings uh, into bright focus the plasticity of the central nervous system and the ability to uh, really uh, interpret information in the, in the brain in ways that we might not expect. We are now at a point where we're questioning, well, you know, how, how does the brain do this? How can you provide information with the brain port, the information goes through, through the tongue? How can you provide information to the tongue and give the individual the experience of vision? You know, so you get this taste of vision, which perhaps will be interpreted by the occipital cortex, the part of the brain that usually interprets vision, or perhaps some other part of the brain. And I, I think that this will really help us in terms of understanding how the brain functions and then being able to use that uh, to further benefit patients. And uh, based on this, we've um, begun collaborations in particular with uh, uh, Justin Crowley at uh, Carnegie Mellon University, who's done really uh, excellent work in neuroplasticity, in particular in the visual system. And this has given us an opportunity to form new relationships within the institution and also between institutions, and uh, also between the institution and industry and the institution and the state. So uh, it, it, this sort of approach really is the best sense, in the best sense, synthetic, bringing together multiple different groups, all for the benefit of the patient. Certainly, we've talked on previous podcasts about the multidisciplinary nature of these studies and what you just said reaffirms that. 
There's a, a couple of items I just want to touch on. One is you've talked about this uh, visual sensing device that uh, perhaps will give the ability of those who, who have lost vision to have some vision capability. If I understand correctly, this is, this is not a gleam in your eye, if I can use that pun, but uh, it's actually been, uh, been experimentally demonstrated. Is that correct? Oh yes, this is real. And uh, uh, quite frankly, when I first heard about it, I didn't believe it. And it took some convincing in order to understand that this sort of approach, providing vision through non-visual pathways, is feasible. And not only is it feasible, it's being done. And this is a, a real live device that is being manufactured by a company, but it's not yet FDA approved. So our, our goal is to uh, study the device, to understand how it works, to help the company in terms of proving the device and also assisting them in understanding what the device can and cannot do, and uh, hopefully making a tool available to our patients that will improve the quality of their lives. I, I, I just want to get back to that because this is really why we're here. Our interest is in making people better. Whether it's making people better through giving them the ability to have some vision so that they can live independently or so that they can have an improved quality of life or whether it's making them better so that they can see well when they used to see poorly, or they can see excellently when they used to see well. All of those things are, uh, are our mission in developing the Center for Ocular Regeneration. The other areas that we're working on now in terms of ocular regeneration include corneal regeneration. So Jim Funderburg and Yijing Du, who are at the UPMCI Center, the Department of Ophthalmology for the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, have identified, uh, discovered, a corneal stromal stem cell. Well, you can imagine that if you have a stromal stem cell, then you have a shot at regrowing a patient's own cornea. And through collaboration with investigators who are also part of the McGowan Institute, and Jim Funderburg is a, a member of the McGowan Institute, as are a number of individuals in the Department of Ophthalmology, including myself. We're hopeful that we can leverage other types of discoveries that have occurred within other areas of medicine towards um, uh, regeneration in ophthalmology. And so, for instance, Steve Badalak's work um, with extracellular matrix and being able to um, regenerate tissue may fit very nicely with Jim Funderburg's work in cornea in helping to uh, develop biosynthetic corneas. So I, I think that uh, we are in a unique environment here at the University of Pittsburgh in having the resources of the McGowan Institute, really world-class scientists who have worked in so many different areas. And it, it, you mentioned multidisciplinary before that that is central to our approach and being able to use the or uh, make use of the discoveries that those individuals have created for a variety of different areas and direct them towards uh, ocular regeneration. This is uh, fascinating because as uh, many of our listeners know from listening to prior podcasts we've had a number of the uh, world-recognized tissue engineers on, on these, uh, this series. And, of course, you mentioned Dr. Badlack, who's certainly one of those pioneers. But his, uh, his success and his efforts have been on other types of tissue. 
And the idea of adapting the technology to ocular issues and ocular needs is uh, certainly of interest to me. I, I think that that phrase, the uh, core technology, is really the, the, the operative phrase because the things that our basic scientists can discover and invent really have about application. And yes, we're interested in the eye, but somebody else may be interested in the cardiovascular system or the musculoskeletal system or some other part of the body. And yet the same basic knowledge applies to all. Uh, Dr. Schumann, uh, what you've described is, is quite fascinating, but uh, I also understand that you, in terms of your new center, uh, have a, a broader vision. Perhaps you can introduce us to uh, the uh, coverage that you have or intend to have. So we're very interested in having the center be comprehensive, and I told you about how comprehensive in sort of a horizontal way, but let's uh, talk a little bit about the areas that we're interested in focusing on. And one of those areas is cornea, and we've talked about Jim Funderberg's work. Obviously, it'll take more to build a cornea than just the stroma, but uh, that's a, a pretty good start. It's a building block. It's really where you have to start. And then we're in the process of investigating ways of regenerating retina, and some of this has been done by others, and other, and most, most of it still remains to be done, whether it's through gene therapy, small molecules, or stem cells, which are all viable approaches to retinal regeneration. Same goes for optic nerve, and uh, I, I think optic nerve, of all of the things that we're looking at, is probably going to be the most difficult, but it is obviously critical. So if you don't have the cables to bring back the information from the retina to the brain, then it doesn't really matter what the retina is seeing because you won't be able to interpret it. So part of uh, what we want to do is to be able to regenerate optic nerve, and we have a number of issues for that, as I mentioned. And just as a, as a sidebar there, it is possible to um, stimulate the optic nerve in the absence of retinal function. And that's really work that Mark Humayan has pioneered with um, microchips being used as uh, sensors that are then providing stimulation to the optic nerve. And this is another fascinating way of providing visual information to these uh, patients through electrical uh, signaling from these microchips directly to the, to the retina or the ganglion cells. And then the, the uh, other area that we're interested in pursuing is uh, ciliary muscle. And I'm interested in the ciliary muscle for a number of different uh, reasons, but I think that that needs to be part of the uh, comprehensive approach. And we are exploring ways of uh, regenerating that tissue as well, and I think we have some, some good leads on that. So there are areas of the center that are active. There are areas that we're growing, no, no pun intended, but there, uh, this is a um, really exciting time to be doing this sort of work. Certainly is exciting and very promising. And as we uh, conclude this particular podcast, I will uh, post on the podcast website the contact information for Dr. Schumann. Uh, he has uh, shared with us both some state-of-the-art clinical activities as well as some emerging and promising research activities. I want to remind our listeners that we're not able to diagnose medical problems by the Internet. Uh, but if you have a clinical need and a clinical interest, uh, you can certainly contact Dr. Schumann for his uh, availability and expertise in that regard. Uh, as we conclude this uh, podcast, I'd like to uh, remind our listeners that, that we welcome suggestions in terms of uh, uh, future interviews. Uh, you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine who sponsors these podcasts. Until we meet again in two weeks, uh, thanks for listening and best wishes.